Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. Hubris is the topic for today's episode, dear listener. Man's persistent immodesty when faced with the limitations of his own knowledge. What is the ideal temperature for the planet? What is the correct price of money? How should seven and a half billion people orientate their lives so as to maximize human happiness and flourishing? Most sensible people would avoid making claims against such humbling questions, heeding Voltaire's timeless advice instead and tending to their own gardens. But not modern man. He is convinced he knows what the global temperature ought to be, how to ensure we get there in the appropriate time frame, and what we all need to do precisely to make that happen. Likewise, ignoring the discrete information provided by hundreds of millions of individual, voluntary, commercial transactions, modern man prefers instead to set the price of credit from the top down, to impose it via decree. So he sets up central banks and Federal Reserve boards, which he packs with idiot savants and pointy-headed PhDs, believing he can dictate to the market what only the market itself can properly apprehend. In this way does he indulge in what Friedrich Hayek called the fatal conceit. Joining me today to discuss man's relentless affection for the hubristic, from Glasgow climate gabfests to inflate-or-die economics at the Fed, is none other than Mr. Bill Bonner. Listeners will know Bill as the founder of the Agora Publishing Companies worldwide and from his daily diary musings, in which he has been poking fun at modern man's follies, foibles and pretenses for nigh on four decades. Please enjoy my conversation with Bill Bonner up next. Hello, Bill. Hello, Joel. How are you doing there, mate? Fine. How are you? Very well. Very well. <clears throat> You're in uh, in Baltimore, is it? I'm in Baltimore, Maryland. Oh, okay. Well, uh, from this end of the uh, of the Americas, I've, I'm very interested in the uh, <laughs> in the goings on up uh, up up north of the Rio Grande. It seems to get just crazier and crazier every time I pick up a newspaper. I'm going to have to stop reading the newspapers. Yeah, yeah. It's nuttier and nuttier all the time. And we're, <laughs> there must be, must be peak nutty in, in, in view here pretty soon. <laughs> I don't well, know. Yeah, I th- but somehow every time, I've, every time I think that, I discover that we're just still in the foothills and that there oh, are yeah. peaks, we, we, peaks beyond I, which we can't see. <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling we have a long way to go with this. Right. So uh, maybe we could uh, we could start today's discussion. I I uh, sent you a, a little note just privately. I had a good chuckle at your your column earlier in the week. Uh, sent Greta, 
And I, oh, I know so. that they've had their kind of, uh, they've concluded their gab fest up in Glasgow with their, uh, their private jets and, uh, and all that. Yeah, kind that's of right. Stuff. <laughs> right. Four, 400 private jets or some such, but I read an interesting, another interesting take on it this week. And I, I wonder if you might want to comment. And it was from a fellow Jeremy, I'll get his name in a second. Uh, but he was writing in one of the London papers and he raised the point, um, why Greta, um, and her, you know, acolytes and, uh, fellow activists, why they are in Glasgow bathing in, you know, two or three days of, of, uh, of warmth and adulation from uh, mm. their surrounding sycophants uh, who all apparently agree on what needs to be done and how much it needs to be done and how urgently it needs to be done. And, uh, but why is this, uh, this cadre not uh, marching on Tiananmen Square or, uh, you know, having a sit in protest in, uh, in Mumbai where, you know, where, things are are really going wrong and where they may not be greeted with such um such red carpet treatment yeah, uh, is that a question or is i thought you're well, leading just, up to something why why <laughs> glasgow <laughs> is there some secret to glasgow no no but know. just just the idea that uh you know going to the first world to lecture people who you know more or less know that if it's if the journey's under a mile, maybe, you know, walk or take a bicycle. Uh, you know, these are people who are already driving Teslas and doing the recycling and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, it, it, yeah. it doesn't seem to be the place of maximum impact if you were trying to deliver a, uh, a, a carbon neutral message. Well, it's, it, yeah, it's not clear to me what message they're trying to deliver. I mean, <laughs> the whole thing is so full of confusion and fraud that you don't know. I mean, a lot of people are making a lot of money out of this green stuff <laughs> and right. not necessarily have anything to do with uh, protecting the planet or and besides, I mean, the planet, uh, the, the, the way people talk about these things is just ridiculous, you know, protecting the planet. Well, the planet is in no danger whatsoever. You, know, you might say humans are in danger, but even that is a huge, huge stretch of uh of suppositions piled on suppositions because you don't know really we don't know really much anything they have models you know it's all based upon models but uh, scientists know perfectly well that models are not science they are something else they're they're guesses about the future based upon various inputs and uh the thing is you know they all started this uh they have a benchmark and the benchmark is 1850 now, why 1850? Because that's presumed to be the beginning of the Industrial Revolution when the really world started heating up. And uh, so since 1850, the amount of carbon dioxide put out by humans has gone up. And the carbon dioxide count in the on the planet has also gone up. And the, the presumption is that it's gone up because of human emissions. This is anthropomorphic uh, or whatever they call it, anthropogenic. But anyway, the, the, and that's a, that also is a theory, you know, it's not clear. Nobody knows really why the level of CO2 has gone up. Although it seems like a logical inference that if people were emitting a lots of CO2 and CO2 is going up, then therefore, you know, as you know, uh, uh, a cor correlation is not causation, but it's close enough. <laughs> so they say, well, That's okay. So, 
Yeah, the humans are emitting a lots of CO2. CO2 is going up. CO2 is presumed, also another supposition, is presumed to cause global warming by means of this, uh, what is actually a metaphor. The metaphor being the greenhouse. That, that these gases then trap the heat inside the earth. Also, it's just, you know, it's a guess about how things work. And it may have some truth to it. I certainly don't know. Neither does anybody else. I want to point out that people don't know these things. These are all hypotheses. And so on the basis of this one hypothesis piled on another hypothesis, we end up with a third hypothesis, which is that therefore things will keep getting warmer as long as CO2 emissions continue. And that may be true. I don't know. But this 1850 baseline is a little bit suspicious because it happens to be about the low point in all of the history of the planet or the pre whatever you call that when it's not really history but in geological time there have been times when uh, there was a lot more co2 and so taking 1850 when it was about at its all-time low and then going forward doesn't necessarily have much to do with the geological uh, past of the planet, because during millions of years, the level of CO2 was much higher than it is today. Temperatures were also much higher, except sometimes when they weren't much higher. So <laughs> you, you can, you know, you can spin that in a lot of different ways, but it's certainly not proof of anything. You know, you're just guessing about what's happening, why it's happening and so on. My own guess is that it's more complicated because it always is. It always turns out to be more complicated than any level of science believes. So that when Einstein step, stepped up and said, ha, ah, you know, it's all relative. <laughs> you know, the, the, that energy and matter were all connected. And he had a nice formula for it, uh, C equal MC squared. And then it was only a few years later when uh, other scientists came forward and said, wait a minute, that's not really the way it works. You know, it's much more complicated than that. And, and, uh, and, and it proved uh, that, that the, the formula was good enough for creating a, a nuclear bomb, but it wasn't good <laughs> enough to really, wasn't really good enough to understand how the universe works because the universe happens to be a lot more complicated than C equal MC squared than, than E equal mc squared. Anyway, it's the same thing with the, the pl planet. I'm sure that mm. in future generations, they're going to say, well, that was kind of an interesting view, but turned out to be not exactly what was going on, and et cetera. Anyway, that's all neither here nor there. This is That's just the science of it or the lack of science of it. But behind beyond that, there are lots of other things going on so that even if it were true, even if they actually did know even if the, the correlation was causation, you know, even if all that were so, it still wouldn't tell you really what you need to know. And that is, would we be better off or worse off by right. limiting CO2? And the answer is nobody knows. Nobody knows because there's a cost to reducing CO2. And the cost is eliminating much of what has made us as rich as we are today because it was the Industrial Revolution after 1850 when progress really took off and the human race went from being something like 1.2 billion people to being 7 billion people. Those 7, people, 7 billion people today now depend. They depend 
not on the green revolution. They depend on the brown revolution, the carbon-based, fossil fuel-based industrial revolution. That's what makes it possible for all those 7 billion people to live in the way they do today. Now, is it, is it possible that we'll find new ways for them to live? Better ways? I don't know. But throwing in, throwing a, a, a monkey wrench a huge monkey wrench into the industrial revolution is a pretty darn risky thing to do. <laughs> and nobody knows what that will do to, to mm. anything. And it, what it could do, because I'm beginning to understand better, or at least to think more about how these things fit together. You know, all this industrial revolution is all very well. Factories, you know, those dark satanic mills turned out all this stuff that we now wear, read, walk with. You know, every everything that we have comes from those dark satanic mills. They're not no longer quite so dark or satanic. But <laughs> when you take that energy away from those mills, what happens? You know, things go bad. We're already seeing these supply chain disruptions, mm. <laughs> which yes. I said I was going to get to that. All so of every all chain disruptions, prices. <laughs> but think about the supply chain disruptions that are coming when you start to misprice energy, which is the core. Right ingredient in the whole industrial revolution is the thing that we all rely on. If the farmer doesn't get the energy for his tractor, his tractor doesn't go out in the field. If the tractor doesn't go out in the field, it doesn't plow a furrow. If it doesn't plow a furrow, it can't come behind and plant a seed. The seed can't grow. No fertilizer <laughs> goes on the seed. It's not irrigated. The plant never grows. The, the fruit of it is never harvested, never ends up in the mill, and never ends up on the shelves of, of the supermarket. Right. Is that not the, a scary thing? The supply chain and and very precarious <laughs> too because uh, very precarious too. But and I feel like we take a lot of this this uh, progress for granted because we think that we can manage and tinker uh, top down. And you you uh, had pointed out adroitly in that article that the the market has has priced energy through its various mechanisms and and its and its myriad and complex ways of. Of measuring and weighing uh, all the different contributions from boat builders to uh, seafaring crew. I'm talking now about the uh, the people who whisked young Saint Greta uh, across the across the fair ocean oh, yeah. at a at a cost of I think you estimated something might have been a hundred thousand dollars when you added all things together. Yeah. Not to mention that the yacht itself I think was owned by maybe the Onassis's or the or Rothschilds. The Rothschilds. Rothschilds, there you go. So, yeah. so, so not a family who is a stranger to earning a buck from the carbon-based <laughs> the carbon -based, yeah. uh, economy. So yeah. when, you add, when you add all this together, it did seem, I mean, obviously there's, a, there's the kind of uh, um, histrionic, you know, political stunt uh, value to it. But when you actually break it down to units of energy consumed, are probably looking at some huge multiple of what it would have cost the planet if she were to just buy a 700 buck seat like the rest of us and <laughs> yeah. you know get back in cattle uh, coach with <laughs> for the yeah i think you're right i mean I, I think that people do not appreciate the the genius of capitalism really because capitalism with its prices the price is not set by central committee not set set in moscow or in washington those prices tell you something. And the $700 for a ticket on an airline across the Atlantic tells you that the 
the energy, or let's say the resources, which include energy, and energy is probably the biggest portion of them, are worth $700 to get her across the Atlantic. But the price of you know taking a private boat that sails because you don't want to use energy, you don't want to use the energy of uh, fossil fuels, ends up being like $100,000 and you put it all together. Somebody had to build a boat, they had to create it, they had to you had to feed all these crewmen, everything. And then they had to fly back, by the way. Right. The crewmen went over. They went <laughs> over on the off. boat, but they flew back. <laughs> anyway, it's only prices that tell us these things. Without prices, without freely set prices, it's impossible to coordinate all the many things that go into making anything. And I think it was Leonard Reed who famously explained why no human being could make a pencil, a number two pencil, because it took so many different processes, you know, to grow the tree, to, to, to mine the lead, to mill the lead, to mill the wood, to get the paint. Where do you put all these things together? Where do you get this eraser from? Somebody's <laughs> got to go out to a tree somewhere in Malaysia and harvest rubber. You know, it's just absolutely mind-boggling. And all of those processes are coordinated through prices, hmm. prices set by markets, not by bureaucrats, because what does a bureaucrat know? And by the way, this is kind of silly that we're having this discussion, because the Soviet Union, bless its heart, conducted this marvelous experiment for 70 years. For 70 years, it tried to make a pencil by decree. <laughs> and it, it had fiat, very fiat favor. <laughs> it had very smart bureaucrats apparatchiks in in Moscow who sat down and figured out that they could make a better pencil by determining all these things themselves rather than letting the markets do it. And so they did. And the result was you go into the store to get a pencil, and there weren't any pencils <laughs> because they couldn't really do it. It didn't make any sense. And anyway. The experiment was run. We know what it did. We know also what it did in, uh, in, in uh, well, with Cuba and in China. In China, it ended up in, in uh, the death of some 20 million people by starvation. Mm. You know, they were running the, the kind of the food system. The food chain was being run with the same sort of thinking that we're now using on the energy chain, by the way. The same sort of thing. And then, oh, yeah, we could do better. We can do this. We can do that. We can change this. And we'll just put smart people in a room and let them decide how to get the rice to the people. Well, the result was a you know, massive, massive failure, famine. This is during the great, great leap forward in 1960s. During, you know, at least during my lifetime, these things have happened. And, uh, you know, you would think that, why don't we learn from this rather than trying to repeat this experiment for the umpteenth time? And it repeated in uh, something so vital as energy. I mean, I, this is, we don't, I don't know. I don't know, you know, that, that, that ignorance is, is, is the way of the world. You know? <laughs> but it's ignorance that allows you to operate systems like this. The guy who's making yellow paint he doesn't have to know how to mine the lead that goes into that pencil. He just has to know how to make that yellow paint properly. And likewise, the guy drilling for oil, he doesn't have to know, you know, what whether the fellow in, in, in Zanesville, Ohio, needs to fill his tank tomorrow or next week. 
You just have to drill out the oil, the oil and sell it at a reasonable price, and everything. It all comes together. Anyway, I don't, I don't think these people have any appreciation whatsoever for that. They have a vision of the world, of the planet going down the tubes, and they're going to save it. They think that all these things that happen, like forest fires in California, are the result of a planet that's suffering, a planet that's suffering from too much carbon dioxide. But in fact, the record shows that there were far more forest fires in California before uh, human beings ever arrived in California. <laughs> that's what it, that's what they do. It gets dry and it burns off. And that's what, anyway, but you just say that. truth there. <clears throat> yes. And that's true of the hurricanes and all the other things. As far as I know, the studies that have been done about these things show there's been no increase in these things. There've always been natural disasters. Mm. Nature is full of tricks, mischief, and full of surprises. If she weren't, you know, it'd be a different world. But what man has done, what fossil fuels have done, is make it possible to survive nature's little uh, hissy fits. You know, there you get a big storm, and uh, <laughs> a big storm blows through Haiti. What happens? People die. They die because they're living in houses that are made of tin. They get washed away. They die because after the storm passes, all their water supplies are contaminated and they die from disease. They die from all sorts of things. The same storm reaches South Carolina, blows through, and, you know, some people's pant potted plants get knocked over. It's not a big deal. You know, somebody happens to be under a telephone pole, the pole falls over and he gets killed in his car. It's not not a, a, a terrible catastrophe, but the point is, it what what makes the difference? Well, the difference is that they use thirty one times as much energy in South Carolina as they do in in uh, Haiti per person per person thirty one times as much. What does that do? It means they have tractors, bulldozers, they have backhoes, they have things that use energy that make it possible to build things out of cinder blocks, out of wood with nice framing, cross-framing, bracing, and, uh, and and hurricane clips. You know what a hurricane clip is? It's a little tiny piece of metal, but you, you, you use it when you're framing up a house so that the roof doesn't blow off. When it, <laughs> it's <laughs> just one of those little things. Bounty but, from but the anyway, But anyway, I think this is all... I, again, I say I don't know why we're even talking about this. It's been proven over and over again that that the market of price setting and uh, of by by markets rather than individuals, which sets in most, which allows us to make a, a pencil, makes houses that don't blow over in hurricanes to survive uh, droughts. You know, in the old days, you get a drought uh, or you get a frost, an early frost, people would starve. And they start right up until about the 18th century. I think the last one was in the 18th century in France, the last famine. I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure about that, but I think it was the 18th century. But why doesn't that happen now? You get a frost, you get an early frost in California. Do people in, in, in Maryland uh, starve? No, they don't because they get stuff shipped from all over the place. And why, how is it shipped? Is it shipped on boats with sails? <laughs> no, it's shipped on boats with engines and the engines run on oil 
And the oil is drilled by people who don't know whether they need to drill that oil for that ship or not. They don't know whether there's going to be a frost in California, but they know that somebody will pay them $100 for the barrel and darn, they can do it for $100 a barrel. So they do it. Anyway, it's a complex system. We know the answers, at least to that part of it. So, uh, so why is it? That, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's it seems that we've you know we have um, the, practically the entire twentieth century to thank for having selflessly run these experiments to, yes. to the cost of a hundred million uh, you know dead peasants, um, uh, unfortunately. And still, it seems like I was just speaking with our uh, with our friend and colleague Dan Denning for this uh, show last week. And he made the point that uh, Mr. Powell, Mr. Jerome Powell's um, tenure is is up at the Fed this coming February. That'll be a, a lovely birthday present for your host, by the way. I'm uh, my forty first forty first birthday present, Mr. Powell, out out of office. But um, <clears throat> it's it, we're talking about his replacement, and there has been some kind of uh, murmurings in the press that uh, the Fed may take on a kind of hypothetical uh, third mandate to accompany its already twin mandate of supposedly keeping a cap on inflation and consumers who are suffering through skyrocketing ribeye prices and gas prices and prices for housing and every other thing that they need to leave to lead a decent life or seeing what a what a bang up job the Fed is doing of keeping a lid on inflation. And then of course there are other, is to uh, maintain what they call full employment, which is another nebulous term that doesn't take oh, into yeah, account yeah, yeah. many other human factors. But the third, um, you know, kind of catch-all mandate would be something like um, delivering equity to the world or something wrapped up in social justice. And I have a feeling that climate is going to be some kind of part of that. Um, do, do you get any sense that that uh, that, that could could take a kind of uh, official capacity at at the Fed and what, what disasters well, might, uh, might, might follow on from such a hubristic undertaking? Yeah, well, I think that that's part of the the way of the world now is every every public corporation is forced now to say things that aren't true <laughs> and to do things <laughs> that don't make any sense just in order to maintain its public relations uh, position. And uh, it, it is not surprising that the Fed, which is a public entity in some ways, although it's owned by private banks, but they they know which side their but bread is buttered on too. And the, uh, the word on the street is that they're going to push Powell out and good, good riddance. He's a horrible, horrible Fed uh, governor. And uh, they're going to push in this woman, Lyle uh, Brainerd. And uh, and she is just more, <laughs> she's just more, the more, <laughs> more the same, only worse. You know, she's more, mm. more uh, Bernanke, more Yellen, more Powell, mm -hmm. and probably then would be uh, ready to embrace a more social, uh, social, sounding proposition but it, it, you know what are they going to do really they have two choices and, and you know all the rest of it is just poppycock they have two choices they either inflate or they don't inflate and in my impression my opinion they have no choice they're going to inflate 
They're going to inflate because everything that they've done for the last 20 years has created a world where they have to inflate. You know, what else are they going to do? Everybody depends on it. Think about how many people got how much money over the last 24 months. Thanks to their inflation, it was all inflation because they printed up, you know, the Fed added something like five trillion dollars since 2019 to its holdings, to its balance sheet, which is the money supply of the U.S. Every penny of that was spent on these government projects, these deficits over the same period. The deficits were for what? Well, they were for stimmy checks, for bailout loans, for all kinds of public policy and just all kinds of idiotic stuff. But without that stuff, without that money, the $5 trillion, what happens? Well, then people have less money. I mean, you can't just increase (laughs) the money that people spend and then decrease the money that people spend without actually decreasing the money they spend. And when you decrease (laughs) the money they spend, that's called a recession. And darn if Lyle Brainerd or any other Fed governor is going to want to be presiding willfully over a recession because a recession like that also means a stock market crash. Right. And that means that she and all of her friends in the fed, all of their friends on wall street and in Washington will take a loss. You know, they too, they they have portfolios, they have money at stake and the money is at stake depends on inflating, not, not inflating. I mean, they only have two choices. You either inflate or you don't inflate. If you don't inflate, then you go to an honest system where you're trying to protect the dollar and the integrity of the entire economy by re, by cause, by allowing real prices to 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 express themselves. That's what it's all about. You either have a market, an honest market, where prices are created by all these millions of interactions like you need in order to make a pencil, so that you can make a pencil properly, or you have a system which we, uh, we've been talking about, like the Soviet Union, like China, and so forth, where things are, are done by fiat, by committees, by bureaucrats who decide what, what things should be. And those people are always going to decide to print more money, <laughs> right? <laughs> because that's, where it's, that's what it's all about. And they really, there are only two choices, and she or whoever's in the Fed is going to go for the printing more money alternative. Now you might say, oh, wait a minute, that's not exactly true because we once had Paul Volcker in at the head of the Fed and he didn't print more money, he did just the opposite. They had inflation. If you'll recall, 1979 was running about 13%. You get a mortgage on your house, you would pay an interest rate of 15% Mm. on home mortgages. The economy was going into a real slump. And so what did Volcker, uh, Volcker do well. Everybody, everybody who was anybody, like every economist was worth the salt, told him what to do: print more money. <laughs> they all knew. Even then, they all knew. <laughs> but, but then the economy, the whole U.S. economy, the government then only owed a trillion dollars. It only owed a trillion dollars, and the whole, uh, the whole economy was only like in the hole by five trillion or something like that. But now. It's a very different story. Now the government owes owes $28 trillion and the economy has $85 trillion worth of debt. And everybody who is anybody, every mover, every shaker, every congressman, every lobbyist, every every Supreme Court justice, I mean, they're 
all, all the entire elite of America has gotten rich by printing money, and none of them are going to want to give it up. And so Paul Volcker, by the way, who died just a couple of years ago, he doesn't exist anymore. And if he did exist, they wouldn't let him anywhere near the Fed. Right. <laughs> because he was, he was an honest central banker. And he was a banker, by the way. He was a real banker. He mm -hmm. understood banking. And he understood that when people had stretched too far, when they owed too much money, there was no solution just to let them go broke. And that's what he did. And, uh, you know, our, our hat's been off to him for a long time. But he doesn't exist today. The situation is very different. No central banker in the world. I'm, I'm stretched. I'm going out of the limb here because I don't know who they all are. <laughs> Maybe in some countries they've got a better one, but but our central bankers are not going to do that. They're, they, 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 they're, they're too in too deep. And now we use that expression that you've probably heard, inflate or die. They have to inflate or this bubble that they've created has to die. And they're not going to want that bubble to die. That's where they've got their reputations. They've got their fortunes. They've got their power, the elite, the control. The whole elite of America depends on that bubble mentality and they're not going to let it, not going to give up on to up on it so instead of giving up on it voluntarily as uh murray rothbard i think has pointed out that you either give up on it voluntarily or you suffer <laughs> from it giving up on you so then it's a, that's then what's it's in flight happen. and then it's in flight and then die yeah flight it was and die yeah that's it's, what really happens it's funny that you mentioned the uh, the 18th century in France because, of course, just across the border, um, in I guess what then would have been uh, Prussia, the German writer uh, Goethe was writing his masterpiece Faust. It was the end of uh, 1790s, early uh, 1800s, and I, I just happened to have it right here. Oh, but there's you a, do. I'm just I'm just looking at it while you were talking about this, and I was like, hang on a second, I've got this. But there's a really, there's a wonderful passage in this in this book, and we're talking, you know, this is a couple of hundred years ago. It's a it's a passage from uh, an act called the Pleasure Garden, and it's all about Mephistopheles uh, convincing the emperor to print paper money, and it's this really? Faustian pact. And there's a there is a, uh, a you know a court <laughs> jester in there who picks up some uh, you know some some uh, newly minted fiat notes from <laughs> from the uh, fr from the court and his uh, his emperor tells him to go off and spend them lavishly and he'll never know the kinds of riches and then of course it all it all comes crashing down and as you say it's the uh, uh, it's you can either suffer the consequences voluntarily or the, the nature of yeah. things will impose the consequences on you and it'll probably yeah. be twice as hard as you would have, would have gotten yeah, away right. with had you've been honest. It, it isn't it amazing how old that story is? You know, that it's a, story, yeah, it's spending money you don't have, trying to do things you shouldn't do, all that always, you know, the pigeons always come home to roost. That's the right. cows <laughs> always come home. <laughs> There's something in these old folk tales which, uh, you know, tells us all that we need to know. Yeah, well, we, we would have to have a reading population for for anyone <laughs> yeah, to take any any notice of that. But Bill, let's try and uh, and wrap up on a uh, if okay. at all possible on an optimistic point, and we'll see how we go with this. Um, maybe there's maybe there's no um, silver lining to this cloud, um, but it did seem uh, uh, at least on the on the surface of it probably doesn't mean anything 
but that in recent off-year elections, I guess they're called, um, there, there was kind of a, maybe this is the way that the media framed it, but there seemed to have been a pushback against elites, you know, finger wagging and telling people what they can, can and can't do um, in, in some elections. I, I can't imagine uh, that that will have any meaningful and or lasting uh, no, imprint on, just, uh, on the overlords. It's just kind of staying, staving off the inevitable, I think. Well, it is in the area of cultural uh, mm. cultural policies and things. And this is mostly concerns the governor of uh, Virginia, who was elected uh, against all odds. <laughs> but what he did was he focused the, the electorate's um, uh, 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 view on education and mainly education because there it was so appalling what the uh what the democrats and the I get the wokesters were up to that people people were really uh, indignant and uh, outraged when they saw what was going on and then when they heard about it and read about it and, and realized that that was really happening to their children even people who were Democrats and who voted for uh, Democrats who who hated uh, Donald Trump, by the way. (laughs) People nevertheless were appalled by these kinds of policies. And in America, so much uh, depends on these race race issues that people get all excited about. And education issues, too, of course, are part of that whole thing. And then it it quickly gets into the... uh, issues of uh, mask and uh, and vaccinations right. too. It's a big, it's anyway, a big grievance so, swap meet at the end. Yeah. Everybody's got to... At a cultural level, there is there is some pushback. And I assume that that will mean that will change the way in which our politics operate to some extent. But it had no effect. It's all a sideshow because what's because happening cosmetics. really is that both, pol- both parties are in full agreement about printing more money and it's the printing more money that'll kill us not the not the you know although there are a lot of other things that are very annoying but i don't think there's quite as fatal as uh as high levels of inflation yeah and as we've we've mentioned before you and i this it it, it's not always uh, obvious and intuitive to be able to follow the breadcrumbs back to the money, but that's really the corrupting agent that leads to these things like cultural upheaval. And, and here again, we have, you know, plenty of examples from, from uh, you know, debased Asinyats in before the French Revolution and you know, on and on and on, we have these historical lessons, which no one seems to care about. So it looks like we'll probably repeat <laughs> again. It does the look same like, thing. yes, and, uh, you know, the in the, uh, in the French Revolution, people had to call each other citoyens. You know, rather than Mr. or Mrs. or whatever it is, you had to had to take your state title. And the same oh. thing in the in in the revolution in Russia, you was comrade. Then you were a comrade. You weren't. You might be a lot of other right. things, but you were a comrade. Well, well now we'll I have, think it's now, now I think it's. Um, I heard the other day uh, somebody stand up uh, in a in a packed auditorium of other comrades, and uh, I think the 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 new and um, a progressive woke way of introducing oneself is to interject with a polite quick point of privilege, Joel Bowman pronouns, he, him. So we'll just maybe, <laughs> maybe in the future, Bill, when we do these, we can, uh, we can introduce ourselves with uh, Bill Bonner, he, him, uh, quick they, point of privilege. 
they, uh, oh, you're going to go with a, a they, them. I thought <laughs> I would go with a they. Yeah, yeah keep it fresh. <laughs> keep it fresh. But All that's right. right well, we, when we've, we've run out of time, but I'm just closing saying that the that money, funny money, it leads to funny other stuff. And we've right. in every every revolution that we know of, you know, the, all these upheavals, they tend to go together. There are high rates of inflation. Next thing you know, people are talking differently. They're dressing differently. They change the courts. They change everything. So we're going to see. It's going to be amusing, Joel. Stay tuned. Well, yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll have front row seats and we'll have these, uh, these conversations to try and dissect what's going on as best we can. And hopefully we'll be able to steer readers away from the worst of the fallout and uh, towards some some safe seats, maybe up the back of the uh, auditorium. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Away from the blood splattering. All right. Thanks a lot, Bill. Appreciate your thoughts as always, mate. All right. Cheers. Thank you, Joel. And talk to you soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonaprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.